get started. Okay, welcome everyone to Science, Alchemy, and Magic Reenchanting Our World. I'm Albert Kim, founder of Noetic Nomads, a community of radical thinkers and doers co-creating a more beautiful future. And I want to thank everyone gathered here today for what is perhaps our boldest and maybe sexiest session yet, one on magic and the occult and their historical relationship to science and other ways of investigating the world. Now, I'm personally a newcomer to this space. Uh, when I hear words or when I used to hear words, uh, such as magic or sorcery or whatnot, I kind of think of Lord of the Rings and fantasy RPGs, uh, or, you know, but that's at least how it used to be. But um, I've begun to change my ways of thinking on these sorts of topics. And one reason being uh, my journeys into the exploration of consciousness and uh, how it is that my hand moves as a result of my command to do so, uh, because um, physical reality is being changed by my willing of it. And what is magic? According to Alistair Crowley, it's the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. So that seems kind of familiar. So when I proposed having a Noetic Nomad session on the topic of magic, I got a surprising, a surprising number of hands go up and not just from anybody, but from people who I believe to be of very high discernment. Um, so, and such as uh, our lovely guest that we have here at our roundtable today, and one uh, in particular being Evan McMullen, whose bridge series at the STOA was on the topic of bridging the gap between science and woo, uh, with the last session being specifically on magic. Uh, so now here we are, a final bridge to largely uncharted territory in the sense-making space here at Noetic Nomads. We go hard or we go home. So let us now explore the more mystical realms with our special guest today. He's a distant relative of Sir Isaac Newton, who, according oh, yeah. to John Maynard Keynes, yes, was not the first of the age of reason, but the last of the magicians. While holding senior data and analytics positions in global media companies in London, he started the wickedly awesome Chaos Magic blog and podcast, Rune Soup, exploring magic, culture, geopolitics, anthropology, and the paranormal, which led to the publication of his first three books, The Chaos Protocols, Starships, A Prehistory of the Spirits, and Pieces of Eight. Now he's with us today on Noetic Nomads to explore topics such as size, synchronicities, the occult, paranormal, the daemon, as Peter Lindbergh puts it, or the universe, as I I personally refer to it. So everyone, please welcome to the stage a most radical of thinkers and doers, the one and only Gordon White. Thanks so much for coming on today, Gordon. That's really nice. That's um, Greg Calwood level introduction. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Gordon. I mean, I'm a big admirer of your work and uh, as are many nomads. I mean, like Rune Soup, my God. I mean, I love that stuff. And uh, I'm really curious about getting into these topics uh, with yourself and the nomads today. And uh, so I'm just going to go over a brief format of how it's going to work and we could get into the festivity. So today it's going to be like an experimental roundtable with Gordon and members of our amazing nomad community, including Evan, Max, Colty, Christian, uh, and Matt. Um, am I forgetting anyone? Hold on one second. All right. Yes. And um, where we explore the history of magic and the occult, as well as our own histories with it and uh, how the relationship with these esoteric traditions has evolved over time and the role that it currently and could potentially play in our world moving forward. And uh, we'll incorporate some audience participation later on where other attendees can chime in with questions and comments. So 
I'd like to start by asking our roundtable participants for a brief uh, introduction of themselves, a little bit about their history uh, and interest in today's topic. And uh, I will start with our guests for today. Gordon, can you please start us off? Sure. I mean, other than what you just said, Albert, um, the only other piece would be uh, I'm involved in permaculture. I'm down here in, in Tasmania. I'm a permaculture designer. I live on a little currently um, being permacultured uh, property. And uh, yeah, that, other than that, I, I'm a podcaster and, and author and, uh, and I love all this stuff. So hello. Yeah, awesome, Gordon. And uh, I'm so sorry for forgetting about the permaculture. Oh, don't part. apologize. It's, 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 you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's really funny because again, like the space that we're involved in, like the Sensebake space and Nosphere and whatnot. Like we we have like we actually just booked a session next week on permaculture, local regenerative living. Good. So it's kind of funny how like we're all starting to like uh, you know spread our tentacles in these different spaces. So again, well, they're so the same yeah. space. I think that's why. So ah, it's, yes. it's blind men and the elephant. Like either the universe is alive or it isn't. Do you know what I? mean yeah, yeah that's it you that's it gordon you so really right i only have one job it looks quite bitsy but it's the one job mm. yeah exactly exactly all right so let's move on to our next uh, roundtable participants um evan would you like to introduce yourself and uh your relationship and history with our topic for today well how much time you got oh um, <laughs> <no. laughs> we have 90 minutes so please be considerate but yes we'd love so to hear my more. uh yeah. my relationship and history with this so well my day job um has usually involved doing something in the fields of software hardware engineering technological design that sort of thing um which i see as just one branch of a tradition that goes back and merges with the traditions that we now call magic and i don't see there as being a distinct difference there sort of like Gordon was saying, I mean, I'm a hylozoist myself, which means I essentially believe that the entire universe is in some sense alive. And so um, my experimentation with uh, how that works has included participation in fairly traditional Western esoteric practices, some of the Crowley stuff, um, some of the more modern stuff, chaos magic, etc. Though my real um, esoteric or magical grounding is in the tantric tradition, specifically the Nyingma tantric Buddhist tradition. So I bring that lens to it, as well as a couple, uh, I guess about uh, 15 years worth of practice in the area of Taoist internal alchemy. So um, cool. this stuff is of uh, great interest to me, and I see it as deeply related to the technological. I also have some experience with permaculture, and I'm about to start uh, doing some more of that myself. So uh, yeah, good, it's, good. Uh, very big commonalities here. So I'm happy to be on the panel. Yes, uh, very much embodying the oneness of all this and the integration of uh, all these supposedly disparate fields. So uh, let's move on next. Matt, uh, give us a little bit about your history and introduction of yourself. Yeah, so it didn't start from a complete standstill, but it really kicked off for me in uh, mid-2012, uh, early 2013. I got on a reading binge. Uh, I think I first started taking a look at near-death experiences again just to see what what was there. And uh, I ended up moving on to uh, a lot of Manly P. Hall's books, uh, got into the uh, Golden Dawn and Diaspora reading. Uh, eventually, after reading uh, Valentin Tomberg's uh, Meditations on the Tarot, I ended up deciding to join BOTA, which is, uh, I have to say this kind of slowly, Builders of the Aditum. Uh, they took a lot of the Golden Dawn uh, Tarot and Kabbalah and Alchemy, rolled it together, and as Paul Foster Case and Ann Davies. So about five years of that, uh, got really busy with work, so I had to put it on the shelf, but I still talked to him plenty. Um, other than that, a lot of interesting mystical experiences, uh, other miscellaneous practice, 
and I've really been interested in uh, kind of like what Evan was talking about, tying the stuff all together. I mean, I'm as interested in this as I am in game B in IDW and anything else. And I like to try and draw on all kinds of different threads and see what people are saying and what kinds of things they're figuring out because yeah, we're in some interesting uh, crises in the 21st century. And uh, I think this is going to be a key piece in solving things. That's yeah. We're in the meta crisis now. We need all the help we can get. So let's, you know I mean? I, I like what Brett Weinstein said. Uh, somebody was asking him like, Hey, isn't taking psychedelics kind of like, uh, you know, it's pretty colors in a computer screen, but isn't still broken. And Brett, his answer was, uh, this is the wrong time to be thinking like that. We need to pull in all resources. Mm. Yeah, I fully agree. Exactly. All hands on deck. Again, again, thanks so much for taking part, Matt. Uh, let's move on next. Colty, can you tell us a little about yourself and your relationship and history with this topic? Yes. Hi. Hello. I'm Colty, and I was really hoping other people would go uh, further first. Um, but I'm promised to keep it as succinct as I possibly can. Uh, I was a weird kid growing up, uh, you know, no surprise uh, to some of you folks who may or may not have gotten to have conversations with me. Um, but I, in attempting to track the path of the influence of magic and alchemy in my life, um, I would say there were some generative experiences uh, with what I did not know at the time was astral travel uh, <laughs> um, when I was probably like nine or 10 years old. Um, uh, I had my first out-of-body experience at a very young age and was smack dab in a field of sunflowers out of nowhere uh, and very confused um, because it seemed as though my body was at a sleepover with my friends and in this field of sunflowers and I did not have the language to explain to the other people around me how visceral that experience was. Um, and there have been any number of um, things that uh, synchronicity as a shorthand uh, might be uh, utilized for, um, up to and including uh, a very influential person in my life in my teen years who introduced me to a book called uh, Pronoia by Rob Brezhny, which is a thick tome um, and really covers a lot of the kind of an integrative concept of the, the universe is conspiring to shower you with blessings, um, but then also a, a lot of woo stuff, but a lot of just like really poetic language. Um, and that same individual also gave me a copy of the book of the law. Um, <laughs> I lived with heroin addicts when I read uh, Diary of a Drug Fiend. Uh, I worked in a truck stop and met a man named Jesus who introduced me to the Order of the Golden Dawn. Uh, and it, a, another point in my teenage years, I saw a massive painting um, by an artist uh, named Florencio Elana, uh, which was entitled Salve e Coagula, um, and was just this phenomenal image of like a, a person type being split into um, with ostensibly a king and a queen pouring uh, fire uh, into a chalice. And there was a phoenix and a dragon and all sorts of symbolism. Um, and the painter and I got into a discussion um, and there was something he said to me at the time about um, how alchemy is the hardest thing you'll ever have to do. But once you've done it, you can't really do anything else. 
which I, whether or not that's ostensibly true, those were some pretty impressionistic aspects of my development and exploration um, in magic. And there's been a lot of things since then. Um, but broadly, I'm here today uh, to bring the non-binary mystique to this panel, um, largely here to listen. Uh, there's a lot of other things I could talk about, um, but I think that kind of sets the stage for how I developed and what I started exploring, um, you know, whether that's divination, poetry, psychedelics, sex magic, a lot of things. Um, and that's what I'll offer as means of introduction. Yeah, awesome, Colty, and you are in good company here with a bunch of fellow weird people. I was definitely a weird kid. And speaking of alchemy, the tagline of Noic Nomads is connect, envision, alchemize. That is not random. There's a reason for that. And uh, next, we can move on to Max. Could you please unmute yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and your relationship with this topic? Okay, so as a day job, uh, I've been a designer, developer, and entrepreneur. Uh, but in terms of alchemy, I started very early. So I went to an alchemical school, a kindergarten school, which was uh, quite unique in the last uh, pagan bastion in France. Uh, and later on, I went to a Gnostic uh, Christian school. So I've learned a lot about um, astral travel, uh, hypnosis, um, ritual magic, CG magic, very early on, and uh, to practice it. I was also Rosicrucian, um, and I just went back to Rosicrucianism, uh, you know, pamphlet uh, very uh, recently, and uh, got interested in uh, Golden Dawn as well. Um, and just recently, I received uh, like a lot of synchronicities of uh, a new magical path that's very exciting to me, um, which I've never uh, really uh, uh, had access to before. So it's quite exciting. All right, awesome. Yeah, definitely interested in exploring more with you, Max. And uh, we have an episode of Noak Nomads coming soon. I swear to God, it's coming out soon. I'm kind of overloaded all this stuff with Max, where we talk about some sorts of this. And thanks so much for being on. And last but not least, we have Christian. Can you please unmute yourself? Tell us a little bit about you and your history with this topic. Sure. Um, I, I, I don't have a strong sense of confidence that I'm qualified to attach magic to my name outside of what was discussed earlier uh, in that life and people are inherently magical. Um, but another fellow weird kid checking in here, uh, I'll, I'll say like a few like highlight reels here. Um, I remember when I was in grade school, like elementary school, one night I went into my sister's bedroom and I took the house key latch off her backpack and put it on my backpack and had no idea why I was doing that. And then the next day, she wasn't on the bus on, uh, on her way home from school. She ended up getting sick at school and stayed behind. And I was like, and I have the key here, what the fuck? And I've always just kind of had a, a, a what the fuck um, uh, approach to life. Like to me, it's weird that people aren't saying what the, what's going on all the time. So my, my main, I think my, I've had mystical experiences. I've had, I've done like, you know, magical practice, but my main, I think, connection to magic is like a felt sense of magic. Um, 
and I'm an artist and I like making music. I like engendering that felt sense of magic more than anything else, where it's everything just feels alive. Everything feels magical. Um, so that's my main, my main thing, even though I'm also down to talk about metaphysics, to talk about all sorts of good stuff. And, and a little anecdote, um, I didn't realize that I've read at least some of one of Gordon White's books until you uh, listed them, Albert. A friend of mine, my most magical friend, gave me uh, Chaos Protocols. And I, I, a little story is like, I remember I had to go to the Apple store for some bullshit. And I'm sitting there waiting for them to genius my, my devices. And I'm reading this book and the, the Apple genius is like, hey, what are you reading? And I'm like, shoot. And he's like, that looks pretty cool. And I had this like weird, like kind of taboo thing. It's like, shh, we're not supposed to like mix weird techie Apple world and magic. Like, can we keep that separate? But it's like, uh, it's like you guys are saying, it's all, it's all one thing. So it's, I like those moments where, you know, what, what are supposed to be separate domains of, of, you know, newospheric domains perhaps start to bump up against each other. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Grishan, yeah, I, I think that every single day I'm like, what the is going on here? Which is why I'm possible. I'm the one bringing this thing into being because I'm like, to me, weird is normal and normal is weird. So again, again, thanks so much for joining us, Christian. And now we are ready to go. And what are we going to get into? I have no idea. In fact, I'm going to leave it up to our uh, lovely roundtable. What is something that perhaps that you're interested in exploring? Just something we could poke at. I'll leave it up to- Can I uh, put a nail in something? Okay, so I've got some concepts I'm going to throw together here that I've been chewing on for a while. Uh, Albert, you talked about upward and downward causation, like your ability to move your hand. Um, I put that concept together with uh, Donald Hoffman's uh, conscious realism, which is the idea that, you know, you have uh, all these conscious agents chained together in canopies and layers, and that you also have those individual contracts merging to make higher level contracts. That's where you get egregores and things like that. And uh, add to that uh, Stephen Wolfram's hypergraph, where it's the idea that every point in the universe is connected. And so you make that a, a pantheistic structure. And all of a sudden, a lot of things get a lot easier to explain, or at least as so it seems. That might not be the exact story, but I feel like it's going somewhere. Kind of like I feel like Donald Hoffman and Jaitan Prakash are onto something. Not only do you have a, a really good model for uh, functionalism with multiple realizability, which is a sense that China could have a China brain based on the people you know occupying the same space and having social contracts and having different egregores and layers on top of that but also uh, you know i think what they've said about the physics of the way the world works and darwinian evolution and things like that it doesn't leave anything out it might not be exactly correct but i think they're going in the right direction so curious if anybody else has any thoughts on that yeah, so it's funny you pulled out those specific examples. For those of you here who might have seen my bridge series on the STOA, um, pretty much all of that was sort of rolled into what I uh, went into there. And I like to combine that with the notion of a philosophical position I'll call virtualism, right? Which uh, distinguishes between what you might think of as your phenomenological world and the notion of reality as in that sort of thing, which is studied by physicists. Because I think that's an important wrinkle to add to that story, right? Because I would essentially posit that there are two, at least two potential categories of magic, right? 
And one of them uh, consists of operations that create results within your own phenomenological world. And this is incredibly powerful and encompasses a lot of what most people think of as the objective world. But also there is or may be sort of magic which accomplishes effects in reality, which is to say that unified underlying quantum hypergraph, that's a bit trickier to get into. So I think adding the sort of virtualism wrinkle to that ties together those topics pretty nicely and suggest those sort of two branches or types of magic we might be interested in discussing. The thing I really liked about what uh, Donald Hoffman was talking about is it's not exactly virtual. Like one of the things that I didn't like about um, Tom Campbell and what he was saying, I like him. He's a sharp guy. He's done a lot of good research. But when you NPC things too much and have a way, if you say that it's all virtual, then what you end up with is a place where biological life that's not human isn't as well accounted for. What I think you're saying is that it's more of the umwelts and things like that. And you're working through your umwelt. And a lot of times, too, you have a fitness landscape that through Darwinian evolution were built to have very restricted for payouts. But if how can you have a because you've sort of put those thinkers together and say it's a pretty totalizing vision. How can you have that and the Umwelt? Because my sort of listening to both of you talk and you did mention phenomenology there is kind of how we sequence it. So I'm finishing a book on animism at the moment. And uh, during the sort of Spanish colonization of Micronesia in South Pacific, there were uh, a couple of um, Franciscans, Dominicans jumped ship uh, to go and preach to these um, Chamorro in what's now Guam. They weren't supposed to, the King said not to do it, but like they were doing the Lord's work, right? Um, and so they're talking to this shaman priest type amongst the Chamorro and they thought they were getting the better hand of him like, cause the Chamorro couldn't explain they kept saying, well, who do you think created the universe then? Like, this is the kind of Catholic thing. And the Shemar looked at the priest like, are you touched? Like, like, who created the ocean? It's like, we create the ocean by fishing on it. Um, and, and it's sort of the sequencing of how we get to a totalizing vision. And, and we do that in a context of ongoing. So I kind of have a, um, I think we get a more satisfying, permanently, um, completely incomplete, um, cosmovision if we situate it a bit more phenomenologically like if we if we prioritize the ongoingness of of being in the universe rather than because it's this is all the kind of footnotes to plato thing right if you split out um phenomenological world from what reality even is you're still i think making the, the error the greeks made right which is that my senses can't be the actual reality there must be something else that it's misapprehending but that thought or that, um, that song, if you will, is still sung in the place of, of lived experience. And it doesn't make these things wrong. It reprioritizes them. And I'm very interested in this because this has been the last sort of 20 years of decent anthropology in the world, is looking for a way to make other frameworks real when you encounter them rather than destroy them, rather than to explain them into another one. And I, so I like the, I like the, um, centering what Evan just did of phenomenology as as like a least worst um, European thought corollary to something like um, non-European frameworks. Uh, but I, so for me, that's we we have a tendency in, in within European frameworks to seek for a totalizing vision, and and that's a thing that we kind of do in place, if you will, or in the context of the ideas we've inherited, which kind of makes it phenomenological. You know, you you get caught in this loop, but not in a in a failure way not not stuck in a loop but just um you're you're permanently in a kind of 
state of presencing, I guess. And and that I, I, that's kind of the next pivot in magic. If you look at it, if you look at what 19th century Orientalism gave us with the Golden Dawn and Crowley and, and so on, it's still stacked on some unexamined first premises. And the last couple of decades, I think we've, we've looked at, um, we've begun to look at what those unexamined first premises are and they unpick a lot of the assumptions, right? They're like, oh, well, we need a total, it must be Kabbalah, right? There must be 10 separate, like the, that, that drive to a totalizing explanation rather than a lived experience if we create the ocean by fishing on it, um, I think makes it difficult to, to talk horizontally and, and to, um, to co-learn or co-enrich by encountering other frameworks, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I, I agree with you there. Um, for the record, that's, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I don't want to just turn this into an explainer of the stuff I've already talked about on the STOA, but part of the most important sections of what I, I'm working with there have to do with the notion of indexicality, which I've picked out of ethnomethodology, right? So looking at the way that words are pointers, you know, um, and, and so not getting caught in a particular totalizing meta narrative because we're simply using the words in a like this moment's context sensitive way to gesture at things, right? And what yeah. we're gesturing oh. at is nonverbal, right? Words don't contain meaning, they're pointers to meaning. It's sort of a, a working assumption that, I, that I'm coming here to this conversation and to all of my conversations with. And, and for me, the most important magical skill that I think one can cultivate is actually a sort of fluidity with respect to switching bet between meta narratives in a way that's sensitive to the unfolding present. So uh, whatever is, is you know, happening in this moment, um, not getting stuck into any particular meta-narrative loop. So I do agree. I think that is an agreement with what you were just saying. Yeah, 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 it's good. And actually that last bit there is a sort of $5 word explanation of chaos magic. So well done. <laughs> I have a take, right? Um, and I did this in the, uh, we did a custodianship course last year. And the take is, and it really is a take just based on uh, or related to what Evan just said, which is leaving aside the, and, and I use the word animism because it's, um, it's fraught, right? Like I use the word animism because it comes from a, a, a darkly wrong way of um, Europeans being in the world. So I don't use it to describe elsewheres and others, but actually sitting with the frameworks of thought that would come with it and staying with the trouble sense. Having said all that, animism or the idea that or the experience of the universe is alive rather than as an intricate machine which even if we think it isn't we our, all our language even in permaculture is based on this like available resources and so on we, we we fall into the trap of the metaphor of the machine without it but i have this take that because we won't admit culturally in the last 150 years that the universe is is alive like that, that that's how we experience it we have to build this pseudo animism and, uh, and phenomenology is one of them, but you also have um, Christopher Alexander, you have permaculture itself, you have Alan Savory, all these people are, uh, and using these words and actually Matt mentioned some people I would put on that list, but uh, almost like a recovery species, the West, more challenging terms there, right, has had to build a pseudo animism because it's, uh, it's in better alignment with actually how we experience the cosmos. So we've got all these, um, yeah, we, we've got a kind of uneven 
literal human centipede of, of, of a pseudo animism going over the last 150 years. And it, this is what I kind of mean. It's a real chop and drop permaculture thing, right? To come back down and go, well, am I situated in, in the metaphor of a living organism or am I situated in the metaphor of a machine when I begin this process? And it's a take rather than anything else, because if you look at the last 150 years, particularly where I'm at in permaculture and talking to people about it's ideological and um, more, not necessarily ideological, but the shortcomings of the frameworks with which it thinks, uh, you can see that it's, it's reached the edge of what you can do without admitting uh, or operating from the experience that the universe is alive. And I kind of see that in, in a lot of different um, fields about what we're ultimately looking for, I think, going back to animism is right relation. Like if, if you put that back, it's, it's a right relation play. Um, and we're not in right relation, right? So it, that's a take rather than anything else. But what do you think? My, I, I agree with that. Um, and not to just like weekly be like, oh, I have nothing to add except agreement. But it does seem as though it's incredibly difficult to get out of an anthropocentric worldview. Um, even for those who are willing to say, uh, you know, fight for animal rights or believe in, you know, the, the uh, I was gonna make some equivalent statement about rocks and minerals, right? Um, but the anthropocentric worldview and the socialized role of humans is very hard to humble. <laughs> um, whether you're talking about, um, relationship with the land, relationship with the society, relationship with the cosmos. I don't fully know how we get people outside of being anthropocentric in a way that they can have right relationship with larger systems. And I'm not saying it's possible, but I do see it as a challenge. It's, it's a challenge, but uh, that's absolutely true. However, like, so one of the, one of my favorite shows I did last year was with Dr. Bayo Kamalafe. And he says, and it's a real post-human thing, what if the way we respond to the crisis is part of the crisis? And something you just said there about, I don't know how we do it. It's the actual knowing, the assumption that we have steps like a recipe or an Ikea build. Uh, that's the thinking that isn't the right relation thinking, right? Because it's, it's not situated. So it, when you say it's hard, it's very challenging. And the, and the biggest challenge is to realize that we are, the way we are responding to the crisis, even using words like that is part of the crisis. So how we do it is to, to be present when we fish. And, and, and that's how I think, it, I literally, that's how I think it's done because it's in those, um, situated webs of agreements and relations that we're all in if we if we show up to them rather than try to think through and then impose a map upon inert matter um i think that's transformative i think that's right relation so it's kind of like he, he talks about making sanctuary donna haraway has staying with the trouble it's about that foundational idea that we um the way we're responding to the crisis is part of the crisis. And, and that's sort of where we're at with permaculture because it's been very, I mean, it emerged in large part in response to like the Club of Rome's limits to growth in the seventies and so on. So it's a, it's a, um, it's a panicked reaction in some respects and, and that's in, in the DNA of its framework. Uh, and so it's more, okay. And, and not just that, because it's a panicked reaction, it's like an emergency plan um, for, for a property or, or something. And that, has 
um, only has taken it as far as it can take it. And so now it's about how you, if we're responding to the crisis in a way that participates in and perpetuates the crisis, then this is the sort of bioeconomalafe thing of like the times are urgent, we must slow down. And, and I think that and it's, it makes it really challenging when you're on a talk like this, right? Because the whole point, we need to shift what the point of being on a call like this is about. We need to shift it to being sort of present to, to voices and experiences rather than like a, um, a corporate brainstorming meeting, which it isn't to be clear, but we start there. Even if we, if we don't do it intentionally, that's generally where we start. Because as you said, we come out of, um, we live with thoughts. We live our lives with thoughts we've inherited that um, their, time, their time is over, right? <laughs> I think that's the way I want to say it. Yeah, I want to jump in on that real quick, um, if I may. So what you were just speaking to, Gordon, um, you know, a, a word you hear a lot around spaces adjacent to this one is complexity, right? And when I think of being in right relationship to complexity, it feels to me a lot more like interacting with other beings than it does interacting with systems in the yeah. sense that we normally mean by that word, right? So, you know, seeing like a state in that book, there's this uh, whole riff on um, the tendency of states to want to systematize things in the form of like evenly spaced rectangular grids for the purpose of taxation yeah. or whatever. And this is, I think, the sort of broken framing and narrative that we've inherited that you're talking about, right? And yeah. when you look at other cultures, the way they relate to extraordinarily complicated dynamic systems is often to, well, you could say anthropomorphize, but not necessarily anthropomorphize. That's, that's just the Western lens on it. It's to relate to them as beings, as, it's, as creatures it's to, with some level of, of yeah. spirit to them, right? And so I think and I that, would even, yeah, I would even just, push that word further and go, we, it's to experience them as persons, right? That's right. literally animism. Because even when we say it's not anthropomorphized, we just made the disastrous decision in the last 300 years of assuming that the only persons in the cosmos are humans. And that's, right. that's a bad take. Like, and then <laughs> consequently, consequently, then we say we anthropomorphize when we try to extend personhood or try to come to an awareness that there are other persons in the world. And I agree, I think what I call animism, and again, situating that in in the dangerous politics of what we're talking about is is the way to do it because you 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 manage the experience of complexity by living in an incomplete phenomenological world like creating the ocean by fishing on it and being in communion with beings which includes thoughts when i say frameworks i get it from carol sanford who's also been on the show and she says a framework is alive it's a being so so permaculture is a framework of thoughts but thoughts are alive. Um, they are a kind of alive. Not all of them, but many of them are. So I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, you, it is experiential um, and, and you, you show up to the universe, you show up to a crowded universe, uh, a, cra <laughs> a, a universe of beings. Yeah, I use the metaphor of dancing a lot for this. Like I like the, the, the sort of image of dancing with egregores, dancing with the landscape, dancing with the river, with the tree, etc. Love it, love it. Uh, I have had this quote from bio uh, on my desktop as an image um, for months now, and I'll just read it. Uh, if we can know with encyclopedic detail the world we want to live in after the present one collapses, extreme caution is advised. That new world is very likely the present one investing in its continuity 
by infiltrating our imaginations. Um, Love it. It sums it up pretty well, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to point toward some of the difficulty that Colty was speaking to about like the, the, why it's difficult to get out of the anthropological uh, anthropocentric frame. Um, and I, a few things are coming up for me. One is to, in order to like extend um, aliveness or agency or whatever into thoughts, into uh, non-organic materials or whatever, um, it, it, it um, or to see ourselves as part of a bigger system generally, it's to give up something of our, our sense of agency, our sense of control over, over what's going on. If my thought is a living being, well, then it's not me, then I don't control it. And that's scary because now I've just got like creatures flying through my imaginal space, right? Um, so I wonder like what, what we can do, what conversations we can have, what art we can broadcast that might help people or, 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 or invite people to explore this concept in a way that feels safe. Because I think it can be quite scary to explore that concept rather than just like, you know, philosophically challenging or something. It's astute. It's very keenly observed. Um, loneliness kills more people than cigarettes. So what you give up when you give up control is um, you get family, right? You, to return to right relation is, is to uh, return to communion. And those two things are interrelated. Our, our fear of losing control is because we are, um, we're, we're permanently in that um, wrong relation or, or, or isolated state because these frameworks have atomized the universe. So you're absolutely true, but it's, it's kind of like, yeah, it's absolutely correct, but it's the same wound. Uh, and, and so, if we were trying to sell it to people, I think the idea. Uh, Gordon, I believe you, you're coming back. I believe in magic. If anyone wants to uh, chime in as uh, Gordon uh, wills himself back to existence. It's very good thoughts. I think one of the things that I was thinking about during that was uh, we have a tendency toward uh, taking on responsibility for everything around us and feeling like if anything's not going quite right or failing in any way that it's on us. And so we have a very narrow bandwidth of information to work with. We get ourselves in trouble by overmanaging that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Gordon, uh, I believe will be joining us uh, shortly. Uh, so Max, so I'm just wondering uh, your thoughts on the current conversation so far, if there's anything that you're, you're interested or curious about. Um, I'm less interested in the abstraction of magic and I'm very much focused on the practicality of it. Um, I think we need a lot more magic uh, in this world, but I think we need to be clear about what it is and explain it into um, maybe some terms that uh, modern day white people uh, can uh, connect with. So like, how does it relate? How does it work? Um, you know, beyond like just, uh, uh, you know, like doing ritual, it's like, why do those rituals have an impact on reality? 
And what are the mechanism to which uh, magic affect things? So for me, uh, this is what I'd like to uh, help people, I think, understand, because it's like uh, there's lots of skepticism, but like there used to be lots of skepticism towards uh, meditation. Um, and uh, then uh, we had um, um, you know, some ERM uh, scientific studies that prove that meditation actually is helpful. Uh, I think it would be useful if we could prove that uh, magic is real and, uh, and the mechanistic of action. But I think it will uh, require us to, um, because it's really difficult to prove uh, magic because it works on synchronicities. So it works on the quantum field, you could say. It's like um, you open the space of possibilities and you kind of sponsor a, a, a path towards the future. Um, but also, uh, it's highly dependent on uh, the magician. So it's like the, um, on the context and uh, where do you send this uh, request towards the future? Um, in a way, it's like uh, the, for me, uh, the great return of uh, the ancient tra traditions of uh, uh, prophecies. Um, and I think we will need uh, a lot more uh, of it. Uh, so I'm really interested in uh, proving that divination is a real thing. Uh, and I spent uh, many years uh, on, on that path and I'm just getting a really uh, uh, a clearer grasp on the, the, the true underlying nature of, uh, of magic. So for instance, I studied with a Native American uh, shaman. So I've learned shamanism from, from this guy. Um, and it recoup with uh, ritual magic that I've learned uh, earlier. And also uh, sort of the science that I, uh, that I picked up you know, at school and everything. So I'm interested in joining you know, all those uh, dots together to kind of say, uh, well, this is not just uh, metaphorical you know it's like very practical and this is how it works and this is how uh, i think we should uh, raise armies of uh, light magicians and chaos magicians um, but it's like uh, you don't have to join uh, you know an order to do so um, if you learn uh, i would say the essence of it so like the base after you can create your own spell you can do uh, whatever uh, whatever you want, if you really understand the concept uh, behind them. So that's what really interests me nowadays. Uh, a couple of things there. Um, the proof thing that suggests you would like empirical proof, um, which I think we have for divination um, in the form of remote viewing. I think we have for everything else with the last 150 years of parapsychological research. But, but more importantly, magic comes to destroy empiricism as the sole determiner of what is and isn't true. Like that's what it, that's what it does. So um, Dean Radin's book, which I'm in, which was great, um, is called Real Magic. And so he's like the world's leading um, parapsychologist has a book which basically says, it turns out parapsychology is just studying magic. But you, what happens is you get to the edge of what empiricism will allow to be real. Uh, and you, and, and magic does that because um, empiricism 
at its base is the idea that we can only know things, it's the premise that we can, the only things we can know about reality we can know from sense data, which is a statement that's outside of sense data anyway, leaving that aside. Um, at the edge of parapsychology where you have remote viewing and, and psi effects and, and demonstrative proof of energy healing and, and all the rest of it, you're now outside of what empiricism will permit to be true. So it actually comes to, when you say we need to prove it, it has been, but what it's done, and it doesn't mean that empiricism is wrong. It means that I deny it the claim to like sole arbiter of what isn't, isn't real. It is a, it is a marvelous system of being with and cohering um, sense-based experience, uh, but magic just kind of knocks it, hits the edge of its um, barriers from the inside. It goes boom, and then you have to get out of it one way or the other. And we've been there arguably since quantum physics. Um, we've been at the edge of what is empirically acceptable within empiricism, but we will not culturally until now, I would argue, step outside of it. So I agree in the sense of proof will work for certain um, psychological or personality types, like empirical proof, but there is an abundance. So if people are like, oh, this isn't real. And, like, and rather than, as you say, rather than having the philosophical discussion of what's real, you can be like, as a matter of fact, <laughs> the, um, the data supporting things like remote viewing were good enough for the CIA for 20 years, for the CIA and NASA to put millions in, right? So who are you to say otherwise? Not you personally, like the hypothetical person you're, you're talking to, you can go, actually, this has been, um, we have 150 years of empirical data that sits at the edge of what empiricism can say about reality. And, uh, and I think we're there. I just think we kind of need to center that in the right people. But by the same time, I don't think anyone's ever convinced by an argument. So I like, I spent a lot of time with um, psi data and parapsychological research about a decade ago, because I, I needed to get in my bones that how I was experiencing reality um, can in some sense be measured by other people. Um, so I, I love and, and really value that those kind of data but i don't i don't think we get to where you can prove magic because it it's outside of the accepted um proof making system i'd like to add some commentary here to build a bridge um between that that notion and the idea that um having a practical digestible basis for people uh, to participate in magic or magical thinking or magical operation. Um, and it might sound a little juvenile, but I, I think it's really useful um, to, to really foster imagination in people because there are a great many things, whether we're talking about um, distractions or the need to survive uh, or, or any number of things that would deaden one's capacity to imagine um, alternate realities that we could emerge into or creative capacities that beings and, re and relationships have. Um, I was very, I had mentioned um, Rob Brezhny before and he has a concept that he wrote about for a long time called the genocide of the imagination. Um, which is a very powerful metaphor in terms of recognizing what happens when there's a drought <laughs> in imaginal thinking. Um, because I do feel as though that leads to um, empiricism's, uh, mis uh, empiricism's authority because we don't 
really offer alternatives to people, which are, hey, uh, imagine something outside of empiricism or, or utilize these stories to envision alternates. Um, so when we talk about a practical bridge into magic or a practical um, use for it, I feel as though leaning into imagination and relationship with creativity uh, is a, a baseline for people. I was going to add one quick thing on that too. Um, as far as uh, you know, deadening of the imagination, uh, how's our uh, technological progress going right now? <laughs> exactly. The, the, uh, I love it. I, I agree completely. It's like, oh, you you want to be you want to be the arbiters of reality. How how's it all going? How's that working out for you? I agree completely. And it's funny. I kind of think the, the coming into right relationship with empiricism actually redeems it because it is valuable. But it we have culturally blown it up to to try to get it to describe reality and it's not what it's for it's like trying to describe reality with hairdressing um don't do that like let hairdressing be hairdressing i agree completely you turn around and go how's how's that going describing reality with hairdressing like how, how are we all doing right now i want to add a layer of nuance to this conversation because i feel like we're sort of equivocating here between empiricism and science right um so empiricism, you know, the sort of most common definition is looking at sense data as the arbiter of what's what exists, what's real, how things work, right? And especially if you just perform the slight extension that's familiar to nearly every culture other than Western culture of including the mind as sense, as a sense, right? Then empiricism's fine, right? When you take yeah. Science, though, on the other hand, the, the method of science insists not just that things be empirical, but also that they be perfectly repeatable. And as you mentioned earlier, Gordon, the turn to quantum physics shows us that that's actually logically impossible. There are no two situations which are perfectly identical at the quantum scale, so no experiment can be repeated to the satisfaction of science in this sense. And science just simply hasn't really caught up with this shock to its epistemological foundation. So empiricism, cool, great, right? But the idea that we can prove anything in a scientific sense has already gone out the window and we're just sort of catching up to that, right? Yeah, the shut up and calculate model for sure. Um, but so it, I, I like that you include, if we, just, if we just include thoughts in empiricism, then it works fine, but we don't. <laughs> and yeah, I agree completely. Um, I invite everyone to uh, look at the um, fantastic uh, alchemical allegory on Netflix, uh, the prequel of the Dark Crystal. And uh, in it, uh, there is uh, the best bad guys uh, you will ever see called the Skaxis. And so um, to give the first keys uh, to unlock, uh, you know, what this uh, piece of work is about, think of the Skaxis as like the skeptical mind and the mystic as the mystical mind. So it's like the imaginary one. Um, and so the skepsis are into the material world, you know, the science. They are very smart, but it's a convergent type of intelligence. It's, it's like, I want it now. Um, the mystic is the opposite. It's like, it's a divergent possibility. It's slow, it's unfocused. So we are in a generation that's like, everything needs to happen now, now, now and very skeptical. It's always no, no, uh, no because, yes, but, but we don't say yes and possibly could be this, possibly could be that. You know, like we need to, uh, I think to navigate the future, we need more, uh, you know, imagination as a quite, quite said. 
but really uh, the beginning of the the skills of the magician is really uh, imagination first and foremost um, and so uh, I think we need to flip the switch from the skexis, which is uh, basically we're in a world dominated by skexis right now into a world of mystics. I want to just like throw a word out there and see if it, it stirs everything up, uh, which is the word aesthetics. And I'm curious what the role of aesthetics might be in everyone's relationship with magic. Um, and I'll just say that part of part of the reason I'm asking that question is because even though I've always had a deep curiosity about magic, um, and I've been quite tempted to maybe go down different magical paths or participate in different magical schools, uh, there's been something of a, a, an aesthetic uh, guidance system that leads me away from that one or away from that one or toward this one. Um, and I wonder how, one, how that might show up for us in our own practice, but also how it might create a bridge for others who are currently really like not engaging with magic. Um, how speaking to or allowing for more freedom of aesthetic uh, can make the, the investigation of, of magic more inviting. I think of that as the complexity of your own mind and you're just sniffing out kind of like if you have a taste for a certain food, uh, something that your body needs, uh, could be nutritional or whatever else. It's probably the same kind of thing where essentially your own structure knows itself and it looks at things and says, yes, there's gold over here. And it might not be the same for each person. Yeah. So, yeah. um, sorry, where you go actually. Oh, I was just going to briefly add on to what Matt had said. I think that most of us in the West are primarily identified with the tiny little corner of mind that is the thinker of our thoughts, right? And even the word our there is problematic, but let's just run with it for a second. And so things like the aesthetic sense, things like our, our, our intuitions, our bodily senses, our, our hunches and all of this stuff are, to me, the the vastly larger sphere of mind that we've shut out, giving us little hints, basically. Yeah, that was, I would, I was going to, mine would be a redescription of that, but it's essentially that. When we talk about aesthetics, it's um, very often mobilized in, in a surface way in, in English, in, in Western discourse, because it's, what you're talking about is like, um, how do I feel about, um, beauty and, and, and joy and, and, and embodiment because, and, and how do I allow that to, in a kind of telos sense, like pull me into my future? Because I think that's, um, that's a real magical way of doing it uh, and, and thinking with it is, is to sort of haunt the word aesthetics um, beyond where it's sometimes, and it's actually in the, the technical term, uh, but it's not, we usually put a word like just in front of it, or oh, that's just aesthetics, right? Uh, but so if you're asking like, what about people who aren't in resonance with uh, how different magical ongoings look or feel to them if they don't respond to it, go with it is, <laughs> is the answer. That's, it's not for you. Listen to, um, listen to that, uh, that bodily or embodied wisdom for sure. Because some of it is, some of it I don't resonate with. Let me just say it nicely. 
Yeah, I, I'll go ahead, Colty. Well, I was going to just say that I appreciate that the topic was brought up. I appreciated uh, Gordon's um, uh, diving deeper into that and I got distracted by a sound. Um, I was recently, I'm gonna segue and then bring it back. I was recently having um, just a phenomenal appreciation for the role of beauty in my life. And, and not only this Venusian kind of beauty, um, but like a, or, you know, decorative or attractiveness kind of beauty, but this expansive, like delicious, um, wow, how do you even put words around how beautiful things are? Um, and another Bresneyism was, um, this notion of the more beautiful, the more true. So that's because they, he was a very influential person in my development. I love the notion that the more beautiful, the more true. And I have a strong sense of, oh, if I'm attracted to it, like follow that kind of this, follow your bliss, follow what lights you up kind of orientation towards life. Um, but I took a, like an online values assessment because I was trying to sort out some values things in myself. And it seemed to me that the way that this values assessment was describing beauty, which I had just decided was like really important to me, was about physical attractiveness within a social stratification, as in like, you want to be, you want to be an attractive person to other people. And I'm like, no, how do we have such different conceptions of beauty, even though that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so when it comes to aesthetics or a relationship to beauty, I do really resonate with, with what Gordon said about like, follow what activates you and not to twist what you said, but follow what activates you. Cause there is a narrative deeper than the blood and nerves twitching of just like, that's attractive to me. Um, there's like a reason that energy comes up. And if we come back to a living universe concept, then that energy being activated or engaged or attracted into a particular space, um, has potency and, um, so far as an operating principle in my life has helped me tumble down beautiful and delightful rabbit holes up to and including this very moment in this very Zoom room. Uh, so that's something I'd like to say about, about beauty and aesthetics. Love it. I, I'm gonna to respond to my own question now that I've been inspired by everyone's shares here. Um, to tie it back in with what we were saying earlier about the importance of, uh, of this capacity to you know, not get stuck in a single totalizing framework or narrative, but to be able to, to be fluid and, and switch. Um, I wonder if aesthetics, well, let's say first of all that like there's an inherent um, desire or appetite or sense of connection with totalization just at a base level of our community. There's something in us that wants a, 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 a unity, a singularity. And if having a totalizing narrative or framework is you know, causing us a shit ton of problems, could aesthetics uh, carry some of the weight um, of our appetite for, for totality, for unity, um, such that we can have a a system of navigating, you know, different reality tunnels, etc. Um, but the system itself has something of a coherent aesthetic, such that, we, that there's a there's a, a sense of continuity between our fluid movements, between our perspectival shifts, and that kind of thing. Mm 
Um, simply yes. So uh, actually, this is towards the end of the book that isn't out yet, and it's very inspired by um, Dr. Tim Tim Ingold, who's a um, who's, I think he's anthropology chair at, in uh, University of Aberdeen, and he's done a lot of work, like decades in, in non-European, well, actually European context, because it's like the Sami and, and, and Northern Europeans, but in indigenous context. And he has this notion of, of wayfaring as how we do epistemology. So what you said there, I would just adjust slightly that how do we, um, can aesthetics be a compass as we move between epistemologies? Like reality channel is wrong because that assumes that at your baseline, you what you're actually saying there is that I have a reality that I can describe differently, but it's still the one reality, right? So this is the difference between naturalism and perspectivism in an Amazonian sense. What you actually want to find, and, and I couldn't agree more, is an epistemology that finds beautiful mankind's generation of epistemologies. So you have a a system of truth-making that means the truth-making systems that we discover along the way, hence wayfaring in our ongoings as being humans. Um, we discover songs about reality and that's what an epistemology is. Now, that means, and this is actually how you save some frankly quite beautiful, what we call totalizing unfairly, but not visions, when you make them songs, <laughs> um, when you make them songs in the same way science is a song, um, in, in the same way uh, Amazonian perspectivism is a song, um, as a description of it, then you can find them beautiful and you don't have to get them to do the heavy lifting of describing all of reality. Um, they're an art project, or, or, but it's, it's better to think of it as a song, like even as a bird song, a spontaneous eruption of like a thing humans do the way birds sing is describe reality right and that's like the animus baseline of it and if that's the case then aesthetics or or beauty and this would be if the universe is alive and it is th then beauty is a kind of uh, is a real thing do you know what i mean um it's 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 extant or um i don't want to say transcendent that's not quite right so yeah i couldn't agree more what you just said is um is getting very close to what being in a cosmos with different songs is, is how to be in a cosmos with different songs so that they don't crash into each other. And, uh, and I think Ingold uh, has, yeah, I, I sort of had this thing, it's a bit unfair, but it's not completely wrong to say that the most interesting stuff that's happened in philosophy in the last 30 years has been in anthropology because anthropology has had to, um, it's literally got skeletons in its closet. So when you're talking about how do we, deal with the sort of imperializing thinking that have brought the world to where it is. The best place to look is, is one of the worst um, culprits. And they did that to their credit in the last sort of 40 years or so. They've been like, how do we, our job, we thought our job was to kind of be white people describing brown people. So how do you do anthropology when you realize it's not great? And how do you do anthropology beyond the human? So how do you do anthropology about persons rather than about humans? And so the most amazing um, medicine for the philosophically thirsty uh, I found in the last few decades has been in anthropology instead of philosophy because, and I do kind of low-key blame Wittgenstein for this, like just solving metaphysics by abandoning it left somewhere else to, to pick it up. And, and, and for me, I find resonance in anthropology's decolonizing journey has opened up a way of being with 
modes of thought because it's all the classic thing about philosophy is that and it's true is it's profound eurocentricity and it's because it came from there it just hasn't gone as far along the journey as anthropology has had to to situate itself um in 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 a in a polyvalent world but i think what you're getting at there is fantastic right i think um uh, and it's it's beauty as a desire arrow as a, in a kind of like just bring it back to greece but like as a pull from the future as a as a um as as a as a navigating or ongoing through a living cosmos i guess i want to tie in with your your description there of uh our epistemologies, our, our systems, our ways of describing reality as essentially the song of humans, right? And, and tie that in to what Christian was saying by mentioning that some of the most aesthetically, universally pleasing forms of literal song are those that are fusions, right? Or superpositions of previous, maybe dead aesthetics or dead songs, right? So you have things like jazz, you have things like all the modern evolutions of music in which what we previously thought of as separate systems of music are existing in some superposition with each other, right? In the same new living song. And that seems to have really high aesthetic value to like large numbers of people because it's really appealing to this ongoing sense that humans are always gonna be singing these songs and we're always gonna be remixing, I think, basically the old songs and that's part of the process. Love it. Yeah, awesome. Uh, what a discussion so far. Um, yeah, I mean, like, uh, Chris, I mean, like, I want to bring in your uh, question into play. Uh, would you like to ask our lovely roundtable what you wanted to ask about intuition? Yeah, I kind of just wanted to double click on that term um, just to get a clear sense of what you guys mean by intuition. Um, and for Gordon, Evan, and anyone else wants to chime in, how can you explain it in a way that is compatible with magic and science? And what is with our ability to pre-know in the first place? And could that be an arbiter of the real, um, as Gordon put it? Like, if I intuit something, does that mean it's real? Based on, like, I have, there's a fact that I have feelings, but feelings are not facts. Um this feelings aren't fact, that's true. So intuition is one of those terms that we've, we're stuck with because our theory of mind is so shit, um, basically. So um, we, we've trapped, so this is, this is a Jungian revelation, like thoughts literally told Carl Jung that people don't have thoughts, thoughts have people. So when he was doing his active imagination and, and generation of the black books and the red book, he was being with his thoughts who said like, um, we were here before you were, um, you, we're just engaging you. And you get that. I've spent, as I said, a lot of time with indigenous thought and a lot of time with indigenous thinkers. And there is a, an awareness that not all thoughts. So there's like, hmm, I want pizza. Probably not a spirit. Um, actually might be a possession depending on what your relationship with food is. But um, thoughts and frameworks being alive kind of changes intuition to being like, well, if you... Um, let me, let me give an example. So if your deceased grandfather appears to you in your dreams the night before you're due to get on a plane and he says, don't get on the plane, don't get on the plane, right? And I'm not going to call that intuition. <laughs> uh, we, it's, intuition is a word that comes from a theory of mind that I think is uh, disastrous. So um, we are in the psyche. The psyche isn't in us. 
and 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 when we think that the psyche is in us we're stuck with these um and it's it's better than not using them but we're stuck with these very um challenged and fraught words like intuition when if you actually just give thoughts some sense of reality then it changes the game about how what thinking is right and this is a real like animist and phenomenologicalist thing like heidegger when talking about how how we um you know inhabit is like we dwell first and then we build any act of thinking is is situated it's situated in a play-based context with other thoughts and and in relation so intuition you actually, um, you don't really find a word like that in Indigenous thought, even though in some cases, like in Aboriginal Australia, uh, in um, they were basically fully telepathic before we uh, did what we did to them, right? So, and it, and that's still deeply in it. But the fifty thousand years of a theory of mind that doesn't trap thoughts in a in a monkey skull means that you um, have a method of communication across the vast distances that are Australia by being with thoughts. And, and so we would describe that as, oh, I had an intuition, you'd be at this watering hole. So I went on this five day walk to get to it. It's not the right way of thinking about it, right? It doesn't necessarily mean, although it's definitely better, an Aboriginal theory of mind um, is right. This comes back to the songs thing. It comes back to like, how do we, um, how do we, what is our theory of mind? What are thoughts to us? So um, that's, that's, it's, you can't be half pregnant with magic, right? Um, and, and this is sort of comes back to, to the proof thing where words like intuition and, and psi data and so on get you to realize, invite you somewhat urgently is a better way of saying it, to step into a living cosmos. Um, and, and the process of doing so means that you either have to shed or upgrade um, some of the aspects of the framework, or at least relativize down some of the aspects of the framework you, you came from. So intuition is a great one, right? Because if you are the person who had that dream and you listen to it, you are living in a very different reality <laughs> to the one you maybe uh, were in before, right? Um. So for me, intuition, uh, I will try to be a bit speculative about it, um, but it's pretty much uh, the unfocused experience of reality. So it's like, if you think uh, you're uh, currently at A, and then the, the target of your thought is B, um, usually you will have a frame of mind. So it's like, how do you see the world? It's your perspective, which is biased. And so here, it's like I have B in mind, which is my drive. Perhaps uh, you, you put something into your subconscious mind that is your objective. Uh, but perhaps, uh, um, like, like me, you're fascinated by truth. or uh, You can never quite achieve it, but you can tend towards it. And you're, if you're really, truly committed to it on a, let's say, subconscious level, but like, uh, like like I would say, it's even your heart, if your heart is really, uh, you know, willing to go there, then uh, the, the process is instead of trying to go like a skexy step by step, which you will never get there, is to be as unfocused as you possibly can, as open to uh, your curiosity. So that's why we say follow the white rabbit. So it's pretty much. Um, um, and also increase your frame, because here uh, we, we, 
we constantly look at the little screen and we think it's more, it's, in fact, it became our interface of reality. So now uh, it's like the challenge of uh, everything you see is your interface. And you will, and if you set uh, an intention clearly, but be as uh, open to any possibilities, um, the, it's like the world comes to you. Um, it's like uh, if you want to develop your intuition, you do, you do automatic writing. You don't care, you don't judge. So the opposite of intuition is judgment. And we live in a world where everyone judges everyone, everyone has an opinion on everything, but very few people really try to do the steps, you know, to embody the knowledge and to understand. <clears throat> so the path of the mystique of the intuitive is to, is to develop your intuition and uh, to, uh, to set put uh, ideas in quarantine. So we are very quick to judge, uh, okay, I know this, I know that, etc. because we've read it in a book. But actually uh, having the discipline to put ideas in quarantine, it's like, oh, maybe it could be this. I put it in the side of my mind. Could be that, I put it in the side of my mind. And so you make a collection of keys like this. And eventually, you keep following your curiosity, your intuition, poof, all the dots will connect. It's like what Steve Jobs said, you know, trust your heart. Um, and for me, uh, Steve Jobs was uh, the biggest mystic of the, of the last 20 years. And Steve Jobs was a mystic. So it's like it's an intelligence that's unfocused. That's like you have to be humble to receive it because it's not, uh, it's not, the thinking mind is gonna uh, open you certain doors to uh, what you truly cherish the most. The thinking mind is only uh, gonna uh, sort of be, uh, uh, let's say, the ping on, uh, on reality. It's like the convergent force that eventually, okay, or you connect the dots, eventually you can use your thinking mind. It's like how to, uh, how to uh, collect them is your intuition. Like to speak to that a little bit. Um, what both of you said I thought was really beautiful. I sort of self-describe as an intuitive person. Um, and I'm like, why am I being shy about that right now? Um, but I, I feel as though whether it's a misnomer or a key in for you, it does indexically point towards a distinct way of operating um, that I don't think there's necessarily a lot of uh, trust fostered for um, in uh, modern society and in Western society, things like that. Um, this is some broad brush shorthand, but as a intuitive person, um, that has meant for me as in a lived experience sort of way, things I had said to you before about noticing when I am energized by an idea, a concept of a conversation. And that energy isn't always pleasant. Sometimes that energy is like alarm bells. Um, but by having a relationship with the aspects of my so-called self that I just kind of indexically call intuition, I have developed a greater capacity for trust in things that don't necessarily have logical or empirical or scientific stories behind them. They do have more mythopoetic stories behind them. Um, so I don't think this was exactly in your question, but 
for people who may be watching this later on who are looking to develop a bit more trust with their intuition, I think the paradox is you develop trust in your intuition by trusting it a bit. And to Max's point, kind of expanding the points upon which you allow your narratives uh, to be built and your life to be built. Um, and from there, those discoveries um, expand your base of operation to the point where you start to say, okay, whether you call it intuition, whether that's imperfect or not, there is something to be touched, to be experienced, to be felt there. Um, so that's what I, my thoughts on that would be. Um, I like what you said about uh, asking for or calling upon aspects of yourself that are maybe non-conscious or, or what have you. Was a, um, there's certainly like an intuitive mode. So 16th century um, grimoireist and abbot, um, Johannes Trithemius, um, very important person in the history of European grimoires. But he had this idea um, as a result of his grimoire work and, and collecting what was sort of the biggest humanist library um, as an abbot in, in Northern Europe at the time um, of the angelic mind and, and how to cultivate it. And, and in some of his books, he pretended they came from a, a mystic in Mallorca, so probably he didn't get burned or whatever, right? But he was a grimoireist and he would use a bunch of grimoire magic techniques to cultivate an angelic mind. So you, you, you built, well, you created an angelic mind through, you know, prayers and, and, and being in the universe in certain ways. And, and the angelic mind is a mind that is open to the, he had to use the word angels, like, again, it's the job, um, uh, the universe being open to communicating with you. So an angelic mind is one that can hear the angels and intelligences of the trees and the rocks and so on when going for a walk. And, and it's, um, that's, what he, what you're describing there, is is a very angelic mind approach. Now, I obviously am going to say this because it's the job. It works better, and this is significant. It works better when you actually step into a cosmovision that allows spirits or something to be a, 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 a kind of real. We don't have to agree on, on on what that happens to be. But so, Dr. Daniel Four, who's been on the show and I've been in ceremony with him um, sometimes, he's got a book called Ancestral Medicine, and he is no longer a practicing psychotherapist, but he was. And so he cultivated this ancestral remediation framework to help clients who, in particular, who've had family trauma and, and, and childhood trauma and, and so on. And what he noticed, this is significant, is he, he got people to say it, even if they were as atheist as the days long, um, calling in different lineages and, and the guardians of that lineage and asking them to, to heal the named and unnamed dead and make sure that none of the kind of like ancestral curses flowed down and, and only the blessings did. And they worked through the system and people would just sit there and say it if they didn't believe a word of it. And it works better whether you believe it or not. So this is the kind of step up from uh, a placebo effect, which we find with energy healing as well. It works better if you approach, you, you, you come to healing faster is the right way of saying it. If you approach um, historic trauma within a framework that has an ancestral lineage. So when what I mean about like, what do you think of intuition? It's like, def, as you say, definitely do it. But bear in mind, if you, if you want to lean into it, at some stage, you're going to have to to, to step into a theory of mind that is a better match for uh, for for a living universe. And I think that, um, I think it kind of coming back to what you're saying about the imagination before or the imaginal um, in a kind of Henri Corbin sense is um, is essential. Like you, you can almost 
hide the kids' vegetables in the food by getting people to do imaginal techniques that, or, or, or making, here's the thing about magic and because I teach it, right? A big part of the job is to give people permission to validate their own experiences because very often they've had them their whole lives. It's just that we don't, we don't talk about how that's a kind of real. And so like moving, I'm not, not necessarily saying become a grimoire magician and cultivate your angelic mind exactly. But what I am saying is that if you do imaginal or intuitive techniques, sooner or later, <laughs> yeah, sooner or later, you're going to have to admit to yourself that you're, you're in a much more delightfully and deliciously crowded universe, I think. That's an hour oh, thing. Sorry. I was just going to say real quick, uh, we have a terminology in the Northeast called, uh, especially when you get the snow and sleet on the ground, is driving with your butt, meaning that you can sense what the car has contact with. And I think a lot of this is just broadening the spectrum on that and getting practice. That's a really good example. That, yeah, I love it. Um, what, what, what I wanted, we get black ice down here, so I'm going to use that this winter. What I wanted to add to this as well is, so something that I've heard a few times in this conversation is the idea of intuition is coming from the unconscious mind. And I think that that's a terminological cue of a wrong relationship here because to assert that mind or anything for that matter is unconscious is basically a category error within the frame of magic. So, you know, if you're conceptualizing intuitions as coming from some unconscious aspect of things, that's not gonna be as effective as if you realize that intuitions are in fact coming from a very, very conscious aspect of things. Okay, so what I think is, um, so you have a consciousness uh, that we experience now that we call uh, the beta stage. And it's like alpha, so you're in a creative mode. So, you, so magic is kind of like alpha, and then you have theta, so lower. But what I believe, uh, how it affects reality is basically, uh, so subconscious, you go deeper. So, so it's like you could say, uh, what's the, the threshold to which you could say subconscious? But when I do hypnotherapy, for instance, what I do is, I um, decrease the brain state. So they go into alpha or theta, depending on what I need. So theta, if I need to, um, to really heal on a physical level, and uh, alpha, if I need to, uh, let's say, rewrite, uh, I mean, help, because I just make a suggestion and they just take it on board as part of their reality. But I think below and above, there's a collective, so above, there's the collective consciousness. And so that's why uh, when you have, uh, you know, a Eureka moment, you know, uh, we say gamma wave, you go to like 60 hertz. So it's like we say uh, head in the clouds, you know, that people, they have heads in the clouds. It's like they download the information. I get tons and tons of downloads all the time. So it's like, if you are connected to the, to the earth as well, because you need to be in the loop like this. Otherwise, it's like, that's why I say, keep your feet on the ground, head in the clouds. So when you're fully grounded, it's like the circuit you know, goes through you. So you're like a channel and you're like, it's going through you. That's why I say, but unless, because most people are not grounded at all. So it does not occur for them. And I believe everyone will be able to reconnect with the collective consciousness of both uh, humanity, which is higher, which is the Akashic record. So the, the recollection of the, what I call the ideosphere. So where do I come from? You know, 
uh, I believe they come from there. You know, Eureka is like, oh yes, I get there. And it's interesting, for instance, that the steam engine was discovered uh, at three different places in the world uh, simultaneously, almost. And so there's this theory of uh, Robert Sheldrake of the, um, I forgot the name of it, um, morphogenic field or something like this. But I call it uh, the ideosphere. But uh, concretely, they are, uh, for me, I think they're stored in a kind of an electromagnetic form, if you like. Um, and that's why magic, magnetic uh, imagination, it's all mag, actually, it's all one of the same thing. So it's like uh, uh, when you're really intuitive, it's like you're kind of genius level. So the genius is from the sky, you know? And the, I think, when we said the genius, you know, has a huge impact on reality and can uh, um, realize people's dream, it's, it's an individual who, or spirit who, who is way up high into the chain of, uh, of spirits um, and then uh, can uh, do something that is in the interest of the individual and the collective. So it's granted those kind of rights because it's like the interface between I want this and the world needs this. So if you are able to make some wishes uh, that uh, will align your true love, because it's because it's never uh, about uh, if it's just about you for your ego, it's never going to be fulfilled. And that's why you have a kind of a people who are make believe. Like people are really talented musicians. You say they get the muse, they get access to the muse. So it's a different metaphor for I think the same thing, which is like you know this um, uh, this genius ideal space where in reality it's not you create something new. It's more like you uh, discover something that has never been discovered before. Um, but it's like a very alchemical way to see the world. It's like light is everywhere, and you just poke hole into you know the box to see through it um, as opposed to uh, it's out of uh, something um, yes i forgot uh, why i was saying this yes because to answer to there's no unconscious so i will tend to uh, say there's a collective consciousness and uh, and i think magic is tapping into this collective consciousness so either consciously or not because it's like if you do music, if you do painting work uh, like Chapel 16 or, or Bosch when he does his uh, paintings or Mozart, you could say it's a kind of uh, tapping into this uh, ideosphere of the collective uh, unconscious, collective consciousness. But especially, I think the most important uh, and influential factor for uh, the collective uh, narrative and consciousness is storytelling. And in particular, nowadays, I will have to admit, it's, uh, it's pretty much Hollywood who's, uh, who's running the show. But um, before, I would have been very uh, skeptical about it. But now it's like, they, yes and no. It's like, um, it's really interesting uh, People do not realize the impact that uh, children uh, movies have on uh, the future of the culture, actually. I mean, they have the biggest impact, if you think about it, because uh, the children mind is very permeable. It's not judgmental like uh, us adults are, you know, we're very judgmental. And then 
our reality is already fully formed. So we don't really have, we don't really question it again because it, it costs cognitive resources, which we are less individual and we don't usually want to do that when we get old and when we are young, it's like, I'm open to any possibilities. So it's like, um, if you want to see the world of the future, you know, the, the, it, what's inside the collective uh, mind and where it's going, look at children movies of the last uh, 10, 15 years. And then uh, you will see the, the bigger magical past that we're, uh, that we're on. Man, you guys have opened up so many interesting conversational threads that could go down, but I feel like we're gonna have to wrap up. Is that right, Albert? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, but, um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, did you want to add something, Christian? Or uh, I could close out. Are we gonna do like a round of something like that, of like uh, final thoughts? Um, yeah. I mean, go ahead if you have uh, anything to 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 close us off with, Christian. You can start us off. Uh, sure. Um, I really wanted to dive into to Adam's question about curses, but that's what uh, the second magic conversation will be about, perhaps. Um, I, hmm, how do I want to close? I, I guess I'll just say thanks, everyone, for like a super stimulating conversation. Um, I feel like it was a generative conversation, uh, a creative conversation, that there was like a flow and um, a fun interplay that was beautiful. So I think it was a magical conversation, uh, a, a potently magical conversation. And I'm gonna be leaving with like interesting uh, little pockets to explore. Um, and yeah, just kind of, the, the, some of the frameworks presented here um, are giving me more freedom to explore things that are important and alive for me. So thank you very much. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Christian, uh, anyone else have anything that they want to close us off with? This, this is a very catalytic space. We should do it more. I would absolutely agree. And I also want to emphasize the gratitude and saying it's it's wonderful to be a living experience with all of you. And I appreciate the conversation and exchange of, of beingness and ideas. So thanks for the invite. I'll leave us with a couple of thoughts that have come up as a result of this conversation. Uh, we started off talking about empiricism. It's always good to remember that empirically, most claims that something are impossible have been proven wrong. And uh, this reminds me of a Frank Herbert quote, that there exists no separation between gods and men. One blends softly casual into another. So I wanna encourage everyone to allow reality to seduce you out of your limitations. Yeah, I love it. Fuck the skexies. Very good. Yeah, thanks for the invite. It, it was it was a scintillating way to start a Saturday morning. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for starting your Saturday morning with us. I know it's like time zones, but again, I mean, so great to have you here. And um, woo -hoo, thanks, everyone. Uh, Evan, Matt, Max, Gordon, Colty, and Christian for taking part in a groundbreaking discussion. I'm blown away at what just happened here. I consider this session to have been the D-Day for Magic Occult and Psy in the sense-making space. Uh, we stormed the beach and we took it with zero casualties. In fact, 
we're all even more beautiful and enlightened than we were when we first started. So congratulations, everyone. Thanks so much, Gordon, for helping take us on this journey. And uh, before we go, is there um, anything that you're working on or anything that uh, you'd like to uh, uh, tantalize us with before we go? Um, I'm finishing up a book, but that'll obviously not be out till the middle of the year. So yeah, other than that, we've just started the Angel Magic course. Uh, so we'll be doing some work on Angelic Mind in a few weeks. So there we go. Awesome. Yeah, definitely look out for Gordon's book coming in the spring and definitely check out his awesome podcast and website, RuneSoup and RuneSoup.com. So that's it for today's session on science, alchemy, and magic re-enchanting our world. And we definitely sprinkled a little bit of pixie dust with our session today. So peace out, everyone. Thanks again. And step up because the world needs you. Okay. Take care, everyone.